Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Theater Podcast, intimate personal conversations with the industry's biggest names. I'm your host, Alan Seals, and our guest, Melissa Errico, is one of the most emotionally insightful people I've talked to in a very long time. It was just incredible to talk with her about her career and how she's approached her characters over the years. And like any good actress, she thinks about the emotional motivation behind her characters and why they're doing what they're doing. But I think she takes one step further and also maybe incorporates the the reason why the creators created those characters, like the writers, especially Stephen Sondheim, somebody who she's had the pleasure of working with in many shows. And speaking of Sondheim, she's got a brand new album coming out on February 16th called Sondheim in the City, which is all songs written by that wonderful man. And then she's got a little mini residency at Birdland Jazz here in New York City from February 14th to 18th. And then the middle of that is the album release party. So that will be awesome to kind of combine everything and have a big old celebration with Melissa. Get your tickets now. Check the show notes for that. And as always, before we kick off the episode, my standard stuff that I remind you to do, leave a rating, leave a review, connect with me on social media, find me on on threads, Facebook, TikTok, all the places that are way too many to keep track of now. <sighs> okay, everybody, please enjoy this episode with Melissa Errico. Today's guest is a Tony Award-nominated actress who made her Broadway debut in the 1992 production of Anna Karenina. She's since added exactly a bazillion more credits uh, to her resume, including <laughs> 93's My Fair Lady, Amour, High Society, and Dracula the Musical. I just like saying Dracula. She has a quadrillion <laughs> TV and film credits, including the 95 TV series CPW, which is very cool, mm. Law & Order, Blue Bloods, The Good Wife, The Jim Gaffigan Show, The Nick, and one of my favorites, Bill. She's also a writer and a recording artist and was a frequent collaborator with the late, great Stephen Sondheim for decades. And her 2018 album, Sondheim Sublime, was called the best all Sondheim album ever recorded by the New York Times. She now has a new album dropping on February 16th called Sondheim in the City. Melissa, Melissa. Melissa Eric Melissa Melissa Erico <laughs> Fairy Mom. Welcome to the Theater Podcast. Hello. If I had any like commercial instincts, we would call it Melissa Co. Melissa Co. Uh, <laughs> my teenage daughter told me she said, "Mom, you're never going to be popular because you don't sing Taylor Swift." I said, <laughs> "Really?" Oh. My teenagers, yeah. And then she saw that you know they're at that age where they know more about life, you know, of than, than the, the parents. And she could see she was possibly being helpful. And she sat down. It was late. It was almost midnight. She's 17. And she said, and mom, nobody knows who Stephen Sondheim is. Mm. <laughs> I was like, that's not true, of course. Mm. No one listening to this podcast likes her now. Uh, no, you must love her. But she's, <laughs> she's a teenager. She's just trying to help mom. But, um, but it is. It's a, dis, it's a, it's a kind. Melissa Co. is committed to... Mr. Sondheim and things like so. Well, I think you you um, you have an opportunity for a really good crossover there. You just need to like slide into Taylor Swift DMs and be like, "Listen, T Swift, you and me, we got to popularize Sondheim." You know, mm -hmm. to be like when when modern artists sample, you know, the Beatles, and the kids are now are like, "Hey, listen, listen to this brand new song called Hey Jude." You know, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I'm not going to give up. I, you know, I'm. It's okay. So I, I listened to my girls, and now we're getting me on t TikTok. Ticky talks. Uh, oh, I still gonna... know what I'm doing there. I need their help. Oh, really? You don't know? Oh my! Well, apparently we're we're gonna we're we're getting. This is the week. We're, I'm on TikTok. I got back. I'm, I got on TikTok. And uh, all right, I had done it before with John Lovitz. John Lovitz put me on TikTok, and we did a funny Christmas special thingy, like just a clip that he put on TikTok and showed me how to make a TikTok. And it was a uh, appropriate because it's winter now. It was a, a redo, a parody of "Baby, It's Cold Outside." And the words were by Adam Gopnik from the New Yorker magazine, but John Lovitz, the comedian, loved it. And we did a version where I'm the sexual aggressor. You know, the song has been canceled yeah. because the man is the sexual aggressor getting oh, yeah, drunk and locking it the door and saying, yeah. it's cold outside, stay here, baby. And she's like, I don't think I should. But now we did it that I'm the sexual aggressor and I'm really hot for him. And he said, I just can't. Baby, it's woke outside. <laughs> 
and then she's like, "Come on, we can. It's this this evening could be PC and nice." Is and that like, is that recording? No, no, don't. Da, da, da. He gets afraid because he might end up accused later of something. And, I want to uh, I want to insert that at this point in this episode. Is it available online? Yeah, it's, I think it's on YouTube and it's all okay, over the gonna, place. I'm going to find a little clip of it. Super funny. Yeah. I really could stay. Baby, it's woke outside. Just have to go away. Baby, it's woke outside. This evening could be somebody listening. PC and Don't touch my hand. The original icebreaker I had was um, Melissa, <laughs> Melissa Erico Fairy Mom. Where did the Fairy Mom part of your social handles come from? Ugh, my children are disgusted with it. They think that it was it was too spontaneous. Uh, it was my own decision. I had no counsel. I have three children uh, who are female. There was a moment where I had a two year old and newborn twins. I was not somebody who saw herself as a fairy mom, as Marmy in Little Women, but immediately the universe gave me three daughters and a Broadway career that I was struggling to keep moving. And I suddenly had literally a kid on each boob and a, a little one on my ankle in many pictures. And I was like walking around with two kids and this other one on my ankle, you know, and it was just <laughs> a whole new, it was a whole new Melissa. And I realized that when I was growing up, I was never introduced to what fairies were, like actual fairies, you know, like Peter Pan and yeah, even really? going back to the 19th century fairies, you know, the great artwork of these beautiful female, mostly flowers, you know, a rose, uh, uh, amaryllis, whatever. And there was a little fairy and those were beautiful works of art. And so I, in some way, felt that I was in a garden. We lived in Soho near Chinatown. So the kids were not fairies in a bucolic, beautiful countryside in England or in the Cotswolds or something. They were in Soho in Chinatown, climbing on brick walls and scaffolding and yeah, like New York kids do. chickens and things in the deli, you know, in Chinatown deli with the actual chickens, you know, mm -hmm. that was like the farm. Uh, and I th saw myself as raising these downtown fairies, like beautiful, soft, emerging, playful girls in a tough city. In, a, in an urban environment. So I had this self, you know, realized sort of idea that, that I was a, a mother to these beautiful, soft, emerging creatures and growing as, as it were like plants between the pavement, you know, between each square of cement, this beautiful child. I think so, raise, Raising Downtown Fairies is the name of your memoir. That, yeah, that's Downtown yeah. Fairies. I've written about the girls, you know, I've written about, uh, I think it was called... Uh, it was a Little Women article for a wellness magazine I work with a lot. And it was a long article about the pandemic and how I felt like Marmy. So my relationship to the girls, it just felt like fairy mom. And I also felt like I'm, I'm entering that age where I reparented myself by having kids and I'm a showgirl all the way through. But I do feel like a lot of artists out there could use a fairy mom. I had a few fairy moms. Marion Seldes, Zoe Caldwell, a lot of the great actresses path across uh, my path mm -hmm. and kind of you know tapped me and sort of said you're there we'll go and back then like, to to your childhood sure. when when you were a tiny a tiny sprite um <laughs> at, at what point like when you were a little kid do you remember that moment when you were when you first started to get interested in was it singing was it dancing was it acting like what what got you interested in in this crazy ass business well it's a mosaic of an answer really uh my father is a concert pianist, but also a doctor. And he's an intense guy, uh, sort of uh, forbidding even, uh, being a surgeon. But he would come home and play the piano. So music from the first minutes I can remember were uh, an antidote to the pressures of uh, medicine and health and death and things like that. Oh, that's and so cool. uh, an intensity in money. My parents were not wealthy uh, at first. And so there was a drive to survive. They lived in the in Harlem with kids. My brother's bed was a drawer, so and they really built uh, they built themselves up. Um, my dad went to Vietnam, so music itself was uh, a escape, and was European. My parents are both Italian, so uh, he was drawn to French music. He played Michel Legrand actually a lot because it was popular music in the '60s. It was sort of the pop music. So when he would stop practicing Chopin and other things. He'd play Michel Legrand, and I saw this transformation in my mother, sexual and erotic and attached and warm and, and you know, less stressed. 
so music right away was a, was was is one answer. I was a very energetic kid. I uh, not like Audrey McDonald, but I know how she sort of reminisces and says she was hyperactive and so mm-hmm. on. Her mother had the good sense to give her theater lessons. Differently, I was athletic and I did gymnastics, gymnastics, gymnastics. And then by twelve, I had this really shapely body and curly hair, and I was just falling off the balance beams plainly, and just too much of a kind of Jessica Rabbit really to do, you know, gymnastics. And my mother had the good sense to put me in a theater camp. And I immediately got the leading role of Hedy LaRue, LaRue, not the leading role, the the soubrette. I played every Adelaide in creation, by the way, until I I landed (laughs) Cosette and then turned into this more serious soprano. But I actually became, I was a sort of, I mean this kindly, a sort of a bimbo, superstar as a kid because I had this shapely body and I could do flips and I could do cartwheels in every show. Sondheim, everybody's put cartwheels in the show. I've always had a great cartwheel. So that was a thing. I will see if one day if I if anybody remembers me if I do like Hello Dolly or something and I do a cartwheel at the bottom of the stairs. Um is I just have a great cartwheel. So so theater camp uh was was an immediate fit because the things that were seeming weaknesses were immediately assets. And that's mm. what I love about the theater, where our weaknesses and our frailties and our imperfections immediately find a home. And that's what I love about every theater actor. And that's why I like being a part of it. And I always identify with my colleagues because they've all found some frailty in themselves. That's been their key. You know what Cocteau always says, like you find, what does he say? Uh, cultivate uh, the thing people least like about you or most criticize and you cultivate it. Um, hmm. you yeah, know. Like lean into what makes you different. And yeah, that's lean into what make makes you different out. or even controversial. Uh, yeah. So the theater camp, and then I think I was completely finished when I saw On Your Toes that same year on Broadway at the Virginia Theater. It was a jazz musical. It was Rogers and Hart. It starred Christine Andreas, Lara Teeter, and Natalia Makarova, the great old ballerina. And I loved seeing Lara Teeter turn this middle-aged woman, probably my age, but he flipped her over upside down and she was kicking. It's so sexy. And it was a jazz-influenced musical theater with so much physical dancing. There was so much dancing and humor. And I just, everyone seemed mad, absolutely mad. And I turned to my mother, I had tears, and I said, who are these people? How did they get up there? I think I thought camp was theater, but then I saw Broadway. I had seen maybe a musical or two, but I'm not like an Annie person. I loved the circus arts uh, of of On Your Toes, the jazz, the tap, the funny. Interesting. And I liked the sex. I liked watching that ballerina become uh, a sexual force, you know. So I think between the the jazz of, of the score, I found my thing. And I've always tried to, to... find that again you know that's why i kind of do jazz now i I, i'm I'm more rogers and Hart, shall we say than rogers and hammerstein that's really interesting for me i've said this so many times in other episodes my my story is that you know i liked performing i liked singing and and what really cemented it for me that i belong to this this kind of club of misfits was when rent (laughs) came out and because rent to me was the crossover it's it's what hamilton just did for this regular generation the newest generation right of okay. bringing in their pop music into a form that actually speaks to them right and it's it's interesting because like I, I i the way the human brain works and the stuff we we glob onto i wonder if it has anything if it's been influenced at all by um the classical stuff that your father played possibly well right? he also Be- did we well, also played bill evans in the house like we the other thing i should say is that we had a we had a very limited soundtrack of donald fagan uh pat Metheny, and bill evans so now I love Brad Meldow and other kinds of unbelievably evocative jazz players, George Shearing. But I was completely raised on a fascination with the piano and the chords, difficult chords. French, there's Debussy and Chopin, where my father was an expert at Poulenc as well. And then there's the jazz. So you're right. There was a, there was a landscape of jazz in, the, in already in my ears. I have a very good sense of a chord. Like I like to sing pure. I'm not a jazz singer, but I do not want to be in a dull environment. I want hmm. an unbelievable chord around every note I sing. Yeah. So in a weird yeah. way, I am a jazz singer because I require the environment. 
And yeah. you said that you're attracted to to the physicality and and I, I feel sort of the same way and I, I think I can relate. And you mentioned in just the sexual energy and all of this as you're describing it, um, it's a full body experience. You know, theater. it's not just park and bark. Musical that's stand- theater. Yeah, musical yeah. theater. And that's what that's what all this stuff is. And so like, do you still find your home with all the TV, all the film, all the, the straight plays that you've done, the non-musical plays? Uh, musical theater, does that still come back to you as like the epitome of, or yeah, the epitome uh, uh, of what makes your whole body happy? Yeah, I mean, no doubt. I mean, when you say all this and all that, I, I did spend a good deal of my Hollywood life in a trailer wondering why nobody knew that this isn't what I do. You know, I would sit next to Angelina Jolie and stuff and be like, God, I could really sing. I wish I could sing for her. <laughs> yeah. Hang on, everybody. We're just going to take a quick break. All right. Now we're back. A couple other people have said very specifically about um, it's a it's a full body expression. It's a need. Like, I think you get to theater. The proverbial you gets into theater because you, like, you, you need a channel to get all this energy out mm-hmm. or... Or you're, you feel isolated, you feel alone, you are a misfit who doesn't feel like you belong, and then all of a sudden you do, right? Because what makes yeah. you different in most crowds now makes you unique and special in in theater. So is yeah, that... Yeah, I think theater was kind of a place to organize my emotions. Uh, and I also grew up in a house where my mother used to whisper to me, you know, we have a Ziegfeld girl in the family. My right. grandmother and her sister were showgirls and came over from Italy in the late 1800s, moved to the Bronx. There was a shipwreck, actually. So they were in Boston for about a few hours, and they had the good sense to figure out how to get on bus. Can you imagine <laughs> what kind of bus that would have been yeah. with all their luggage from Italy? Yeah. Didn't speak yeah. English. They got to the Bronx, and they had uh, five brothers and sisters. They got to the Bronx, and the dad died. And they had to get out and work. They were 15, and they were beautiful. And... My grandmother, by 22, was singing on the radio, and her sister got discovered, actually, by Florence Ziegfeld. Yeah. And she became a Ziegfeld Follies girl. So we had a, a Follies girl in the family, and I used to talk with her, and I knew her. She smoked a lot. I remember the smoke and the feather boas and the kind of... She never you know, ceased to wear bright red lipstick. So I, I also had this feeling that there was this genetics as well you know so i wasn't just a misfit wanting to join the circus but i was a sort of circus artist born to the circus in 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 a sense because a prior generation was inviting me and i resembled her a, a little bit you know i look a little like aunt rose so i think really it was just inevitable but i think you're right i i'm always interested in how other people feel uh i do think that it was a physical i was drawn to it physically i think i just enjoy the music I love the stories, the characters. I like making people laugh. I mean, the first the first thing was that, you know, it was funny. You know, it was, it was always funny. It was quirky. And I would come out and I was smart so that I like, there was no question that I understood what I was saying. It wasn't uh, trying to get a reaction. I just understood the script, you know. Well, well he didn't say that, Mr. Wet, that I, you know, I would have some line, you know, well, I don't know, Mr. I don't know what the lines would be anymore, like of Hedy LaRue, but she would just sort of say, I don't know what happened to the to the check. I don't know. He took mm-hmm. the check. He said it was his check. You know, and I just said the line real clear. Uh, so the 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 sense that the I had good sense of uh, a character's uh, requirement in the script. Right. So that came uh, in handy too, just a good sense. I just had good sense. And I was funny, you know, because I had big hair and, and a shapely figure. And so that was funny too, that you don't have to do anything. People are already going, oh my God, look at her. <laughs> the high heels and the ass, you know. So, so the, uh, yeah. Well, then then the, um, I mean, the Sondheim of it all, right? Like you you were frequently collaborating with Stephen for, for well, years and... I, well, I guess some how'd... people would roll their eyes right now. It's not that I'm not like Bernadette Peters, where I, he was writing musicals and obsessed with me. Let's not, I don't want to have a false sense of intimacy. But I did work in in three musicals, and I did have the the crazy sense to show up at Sunday in the Park with George, which was the first revival of its kind, uh, where I wore her clothes. Wow. That's where I met him. I met him in rehearsal. So what were you going to ask? Oh, just um, yeah. getting into how that relationship began, which you just asked that. So oh, I'm happy the to part- answer. Yeah. No, no, I could tell you because he came to the first the first rehearsal he came to. We had already um, 
just a few, be gone by just a few days. And my background at Yale was in art, art history and philosophy. And I love art. So right away, the idea that I was a painter's model seemed to me pretty much what I think if you believe in past life or anything, you know, like I easily could have been a, a Viennese model to some guy, you know, some genius. Like that just works for me. You know, this idea of this being in his atelier, just undressed in the 18th century or 1900s. Yeah. Yeah. The sort of fantasy look kind of thing. Like just to me, that's just so fun. And just how it sounded it's stupidly, I probably should be more of a feminist and think of myself as this pioneer painter, but that didn't, I wasn't brought up with women of the 60s. So I guess I had limited self view. But anyway, I digress. So I imagined myself very easily a, a dot. And I showed up at rehearsal at the Kennedy Center with an idea that Raul being a Cuban too had such intensity. I said, Oh, he's so intense. And so if I'm getting ready, doing the color and light sequence, and we're in our home, I knew a lot about art history and a bathtub is so appropriate for the impressionist uh, visuals. It's it's so ar uh, archetypal to be in a bathtub. So I suggested to Derek McLean before we started rehearsals that he build a bathtub and I do the whole thing undressed because a nude in a bathtub is bathers are one of the is, you know it's an essential category of art of art history in the yeah. impressionist era. The bather, the woman bent over a basin or uh, seen from the back like a cello sort of leaning against her own bathtub. So I said, let's recreate the nudity of impressionism. And then when he says, I have to finish the hat, there she'll be naked. Just, she can't break through to this guy. He, the, the propulsion to, to, to create is so great yeah. that he, he can't even follow the greatest invitation where he promised he'd take her to the Follies that night. It's not like I just decided, oh, it's a work day. I'm going to try to seduce him. This is a night we put aside to go to the Follies. And that's what that's about. And it's a special night. And it's, I still fail to even get that one night with him because of the urgency to finish the hat, mm -hmm. which for me really is just a big magnifying glass on Stephen's uh, point in that musical and maybe his point in life. So uh, my first rehearsal with him was my going, oh, hi, Mr. Sondheim. I have this idea that we should change all the lyrics to color and light. And I'll be naked in a bathtub. And all you just have to do is change the stuff about the the rouge and the lipstick and the stuff because I won't be doing my face. I'll be in a tub and and then he just was just silent and he said he could do like more scent, more soap and and so I would be dabbling myself with scent and you know oils under the chin and putting a little soap and that's all. It was a small little change because everything else will work. If my legs were longer, if my bust were fuller, right? She's looking at her body, right? Um, so the lines of that were inviting self-analysis, which you do in a tub. So anyhow, so he had this crazy first two seconds. Hello, could you change all the words? I was so young, you know, and so he, that was fun and he did it and he went with it. So that was, you know, that was kind of cool. And, and uh, there's some YouTube stuff, you know, where he spoke appreciatively and Barbara Cook did too, so of that production. So that was a real nice start and a real creative, bold way to meet him. Uh, so that right, yeah, so, really cool, right? I, I mean, it's so, crazy. I realize a little crazy, but that is that is very bold. Um, it was so bold. You see, I'm older now. I would never do that. I, but I was a kid, and I was. I think I had a good idea. And if you if you read some of James Lapine's uh, reminiscences about uh, Sunday in the Park with George, you see, he wanted to do bathing. You'll see that there's some experts out there. Yeah, I I have his book behind me. I could probably find the section, but they wanted it, and Bernadette didn't want to do it. I don't know if you could do that now, even with like everybody in a camera in their pocket. And I mean, all those. Oh, like, well, can, there's pictures can... of my back all over the place. And yeah. it's on YouTube. L luckily, whoever put it on YouTube put a little like fuzzy bit um, <laughs> on my upper body. So that's so it's tastefully uh, out there. Right, right, at right. At the moment. I, I see what you're saying, but I'd do it again. I have another idea for nudity uh, that I think would be beautiful. A Kurt Vile thing. I think you know. I guess you're right that we everybody's so abusive now of our of of the of coming to a show. They now turn it into content on their own TikTok. And yeah. So, so. Yeah. I mean, well, I'll worry about that but... if I ever get a part. Well, if you're gonna if you're gonna do it, yeah, you post it yourself first, and then you know beat everybody else to it. Yeah, or then get you... a great lighting designer or something. 
Yeah. Um, but anyhow, so that's how it began. It began because I wanted to to make something impressionistic that was vulnerable. It was really just to make her vulnerable so that she really was all out intimate with him and no chance. Do you, do you like that? Do you like, do you like being like going to these really vulnerable places uh, in a public way on stage? Cause it's safe. I would say, I would venture to say it's safe because on stage it's controlled. There's lights, there's angles, there's whatever. Right. So it allows you to, I think I'm, I'm speculating explore sides of yourself um, that you wouldn't get to do in normal situations. Well, normal situ situations are still better than the stage, but, um, but <laughs> <laughs> I mean, come on. There are, we must all remember, I remember uh, Nancy Marsh and the great actress, I shared a dressing room with her doing uh, the importance of being earnest. And I played Gwendolyn. Eric Stoltz was earnest. It was an amazing production. I was setting up my dressing room and she was right next to me and I had all my pictures and I had a little plant and I had a little cloth and I was really setting up my dressing room and she had nothing. She just had like, you know, like lipstick or nothing, really just the minimal. And she turned to me and she said, not in a rude way, but she said, this is not your home. This is not your mm. home. And I was like, hmm. She was trying to say something, obviously, about life and art. So, so to separate the two, which is something that I think I now have completely done, uh, yes, when I was younger, maybe I did like all the attachments and, and the intimacy of falling in love with whatever Stephen Buntrock and Finian's Rainbow or Marius when I was in Les Mis. It all, it all felt uh, like I was growing up. I mean, I was a young person, so the characters were having more life than I was, right? They were falling in love. I was getting married and it was every play. Mm -hmm. I was probably married hundreds of times before I was married in real life. Sometimes I feel the characters were more mature than I was. Maybe a high society is a role that I wasn't even mature enough to play. She was, Catherine Hepburn, you know, basically forced Philip Barry to write that play because she was living a love triangle in her own life. And she forced him to write that play to reflect her own love of one director and her other, her other relationships. So she was living co a complex life when she performed that. I myself was not. I'd never been married, certainly not in a love triangle. So it, it, it's hard to say. So yes, there probably was a side of me that enjoyed living through the characters uh, and learning about love and sex through the, through the characters. Now there's been a reversal where I'm more mature and have been married 25 years and been through a lot of different things. You know, people I know have died, you know, it's, mm -hmm. you know, things that are, so now when I would come to, I think I have more to bring in a different way. Uh, we we all have things to bring. You you know when you're young, the adventure, and the yeah the sex sexual energy and the curiosity. But then as you get older, you have the benefits of time, perspective. So your characters will be the older characters who will have that. So we're all welcome to have our different reasons, and as long as we are still alive, coming you know with life inside us. But the information changes that you bring, right? You know? It, 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 it does change. Passion is probably the best way to answer that. Passion was the most intense and intimate character I ever played in a Sondheim character. I played Clara. And Judy Kuhn was Fosca. Oh, I love her. And I was a mother to two three-year-olds and a five-year-old at the time. And the character has a child. And she also wants to be with Giorgio. And he eventually says that her commitment to him is not enough and she can't give up her child. So for her, it's a lot, which she's already doing, meeting him in that room. So that was a very intimate show. And I didn't do it n nude, you know, which Marin Maisie did. Uh, John Doyle had a different idea. He had an amazing idea that we all wear the same costume, even though it covers many, many years. We all wear the same one thing. Hmm. And so it was a avant-garde idea and I had this voluptuous gorgeous gold dress that was so rich and had these heavy heavy petticoats so I was instead of undressed I was just burying Giorgio under all this fabric and I was lying on top of him when this show starts so it had a sort of I looked like a I looked like a an ocean that had just come crashing over him you know I looked a fabric like an ocean of fabric so there was an orgiastic sort of look to it but and I won't, I'm not going to lie. It was, fun. <laughs> it, was fun. it was fun. It's such a good show. It's such a good show. Sondheim told me at one point in my dressing room, he said, take a good look. It begins with an orgasm and it ends with an orgasm. 
so I guess you have Fosca's death, the orgasm to death, but my orgasm begins the show. So it's a really uh, incredible, intimate show. So if anybody uh, yeah. looking for a, a good time, try to get cast in that show. <laughs> <laughs> it's also a, an awful time. Jeremy Sams, the great fa famous British director, said no one can survive a production of Passion. In what way? What do you mean? What did he mean? It just wrecks you. Oh, it just emotionally? Wrecks you. It just wrecks you. Yeah, it wrecks you. It wrecked me. It wrecks you. Did it really? Like, do you, It kind of wrecked me for a bit. I just heard yeah. the term uh, recently called the exit practice. So it's like, you know, what do you do to leave your character at the, in, on stage oh. and go back to being yourself, right? What's so, it called? Exit practice? An exit practice. Oh, my yeah. God. You, all you people have this mental health stuff we didn't have, you see. There's no exit practice in the characters of women of the 90s then exit practice everybody's that's so interesting so it's it's a known thing now to protect oneself to come out of your character and back into yeah yourself. yeah it's actually al silber that just told me that in in a in an oh. interview the other day um that well she's, she's a thoughtful doing, young person how cool she's 43 she's my age um okay well she's still it's still it's still you know not that 43 is it young it's people we're far, all young but for behind me but it is it's one one nudge one generation yeah interesting yeah yeah so like because we were talking huh. about, you know, the Fiddler, and now in our class, she's a um, a Polish student who's just going through, again, the Holocaust time of, of history. And it's so heavy that we're talking, you know, again, it's how do you leave that stress, that anxiety, that eight times a week, your body doesn't know that you're, that you're not actually stressed, but hmm. your brain does. So you're, you're, you, you can't tell your body, oh, this is just fake stress right now. Don't worry yeah, about it. Yeah, but don't forget the Pinot Noir grape is the sweetest of all, and it's the most stressed grape. The environment is the most stressed. So don't be afraid of stress. I think our generation, you know, I think everybody's too worried about the role of stress. Stress can be good for you. Oh, yeah. No, good things yeah. can come out of stress. Can, I work yeah. best. I, if, I don't, if I have nothing to do, I, like if I'm not stressed, I can't get anything done. But when I'm stressed, like, I am knocking out my to-do list so it's hard. It's good for you. Yeah, it's yeah. good. It's good. But, yeah. no, um, I guess there's, everybody has a different view. I, I heard beautiful Aaron Lazar's thoughts about his um, having ALS right now, and he felt that maybe mm. he needed more rest for his nervous system. Yep, yep. Some reflections that he's had are so profound. What a beautiful man. Well, reflection. Your reflection doesn't mean you have to slow down. But yes, I, I agree. Yeah, we should um, we should all reflect, especially yeah, when, we leave our, when we leave the theater. I, I, I don't always have the benefit of that. I come home right to the kids. So it's immediate shift. I don't have yeah. to work hard now because I have such a rich life at home. I just come home. Mom, uh, no one knows who Sondheim is. Oh, yeah, oh. exactly. And I get great advice from my teenagers. Yeah. Hang on, everybody. We're just going to take a quick break. All right. Now we're back. Well, so Sondheim in the City, your new album. Yes. Um, it's just beautiful and it's these these arrangements of songs that you think you know we uh, the per, again the proverbial you you think you know it but then something you said earlier i think explains why you did what you did with this album was you said that everything you do ha you want a full chord behind it mm -hmm. I, I, i'm probably just butchering what you said earlier in this episode no 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 you probably but, are picking up on rob but, mathis's contribution the the producer is a stings musical director and works with elvis costello works with a lot of very evocative m pop musicians. So yeah. we, we do a lot of a lot of cool chords and open tune guitars and world class, really world class, the most world class you can, uh, swing musicians. Fourteen uh, piece horn swing section. Uh, Seventeen members of the Philharmonic are on it. So it's got an orchestra. It's really amazing. So there's a lot of texture, yeah, musical texture. That's not all. The, you know, birthed from my imagination. That's also Rob Mathis is an icon. Mm -hmm. So I'm your, so glad you like it. You know, it came really out of an instinct coming out of the pandemic, thinking that we're all in a, we were, hopefully were, in a something of a freeze. And as we come out of that freeze of a pandemic, I was thinking about Manhattan and the possibilities of Manhattan, the promises, the aspirations, the importance to defy certain resistances things songs like everybody says don't mm -hmm. uh also the naive pleasures of you know an inch of sky or a fly or two what more do i need you know what more do i need how we all just enjoy the half a half a tree that we can see from our west village apartment but we feel so appreciative to be a part of this great city i was thinking about manhattan especially after the pandemic and 
I did a show called Melissa Sings Her New York, which was all the themes of my album. After three encores, when the encores were really exciting and really pleasurable because a lot of iconic people came that were being celebrated, like Donna McKechnie. And it wasn't an all Sondheim. It was a lot of Sondheim in it. And it had the follies in it because it had my own, my own memories of, of Manhattan and, and my own Broadway baby aspirations are in it. And then long marriage. I was married in Central Park. I had a lot of starring roles, hard times, relationships that were destroyed or something, you know, impossible. So many of us have half realized love affairs in Manhattan or, you know, dreams of love. So that's that beautiful concert happened. It did it three times and then Sondheim passed. And I thought, wow. And so much of the show was Sondheim already. Uh, another hundred people. I'm a girl from Long Island wanted to get on that train to New York. Mm -hmm. So I thought for another year about Sondheim and the, these ideas I have about Manhattan. So then I made this record, changed it, you know, in my mind from New York, Melissa Sings New York to Sondheim in the city. And I thought more about Sondheim's love of New York and the fact that he says he lived his entire life in a 20 block radius. So... Yeah. I, I thought about his feelings about Manhattan, which I think are sarcastic, ecstatic, romantic, ecstatic. They're not really cynical and they're not hard. He loved Manhattan. So it's a little bit of a, I'm sort of the Carrie Bradshaw of my own album, walking through his, <laughs> his New York. And I, I, I do think that if we look closely at the history of people who wrote about Manhattan, people like John O'Hara or E.B. White, the great, New York writers, Adam Gopnik, uh, right now, people who love and really embody the energy and passion for the pluralistic sort of world that we live in in New York. Really important to remember, we're living in a time where a lot of people are asking to be a part of that pluralistic fabric. I thought Sondheim as a, a poet laureate, you know, one of the enduring poets of what mm -hmm. it is to be a Manhattan person. And I think Manhattan's in a little trouble. You can hardly tell uptown from downtown now it's all cvs and mm -hmm. you know it used to be so clear you know that downtown in the 1800s was 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 uh in the 1800s was like gramercy park and then as i got to enter new york it was soho and yeah. for you is probably tribeca yeah right and now it's brooklyn uh but That's the true. idea of manhattan is this amazingly mutable thing but sondheim has a great song called uptown downtown and so we said we have to remember the the city that had so much color. And so we got to keep, I think, um, just caring about the city. Yeah. So it's a tribute to Manhattan as well as a tribute to Sondheim, as well as a kind of, this is a big word. People are going to hate me for this word. A palimpsest. Do you know what that means? A palimpsest? A palimpsest is, is a, it's a, it's palimpsest. a palimpsest. It's, it's a, it's a, uh, a written document where the original writing has been written over, but you still see traces of what's underneath so it's a it's a piece of writing where you see two layers simultaneously something reused so, or altered but still bearing visible traces of its earlier form right so uh, my character in the sondheim is a palimpsest i see and know the traces of myself underneath the i'm album. gonna name so my it, next kid palimpsest <laughs> yes yeah, so, so the album has all this for me it's a city it's sondheim and it's a kind of double layer of a woman that i've created but i see myself in the the traces of myself through the whole thing the sondheim the, the the follies girl the married girl you know i do little things you do together and then all those amazing songs we have to remember anyone can whistle yeah uh is a song about people who can do extraordinary things like read greek but they can't do the simplest things so many of us know creative new yorkers like that yeah um that are amazing, but also deeply, deeply helpless on another level, vulnerable and helpless. It's tender. interesting. It's interesting. Yeah. The smart, creative people who can't do basic things like ride a bike, swim or drive a car, you know? Yeah. Or be touched, you know? Yeah. Oh, that's so, true. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, I think that, uh, anyone can whistle is, you know, in a town. So sometimes I, I don't have a literal Manhattan song, but it's very clearly an urban song. I had a lot yeah. of curators for this. So the songs I chose were deeply curated by some real heavy Sondheim nerds. So I feel pretty good about what we chose. Do you know the song, It Wasn't Meant to Happen? Mm -mm. It was cut from Follies and 
I'm convinced that Sondheim has a drawer in his mind where he where, from which sprang Send in the Clowns, but It Wasn't Meant to Happen is the same song as Send in the Clowns, but it's just super hard to sing. It's like the harder <laughs> to sing Send in the Clowns. <laughs> Maybe got cut. On, got cut because it was too hard. And he's it's like, I'm too just hard to it. sing. It's super hard to sing. And so that's on the record. And it's really about the sound, you know, or the spirit of New York regret. You know, some of us have this idea that we all come together. We almost made everything work. We almost did it. We almost made it fit, whether it's success or a company or a love or a community. Like we almost did it, but not quite, not quite. Still hmm. no regrets, hmm. you know, well, no regrets. Here come no, another hundred people. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. New York. I love that. I love that. And exactly. then you've also got, um, let's see, I just want to plug real quick, your Birdland Jazz Concert. Oh, well, the 14th. Birdland is, is, is hopefully, oh, please, please, folks, come, because we are going to play with this layered thing, Sondheim Jazz, the film noir sides of this record, which are kind of in the Follies pastiche songs, the 20s and 30s sound of Follies. And we're, we're doing a, a residency like we did last year, 10 shows in a row where I live in Birdland. And I just, by the second or third night, I have no idea who I am because we're just there all the time. Me, the band, guests, great people are going to come in. Tr famous trumpet players are going to come from, you know, Catherine Russell's playing upstairs. Some of her band are going to come down and do, do numbers and go back up. It's like we're going to create, like we're just going to be drunk for days on music. <laughs> So I wanna, check it out. It's on a, it come. starts Valentine's Day. I want everyone to think Valentine's Day, Melissa, and come That's for Jesus. five days. You can come for five days. It's cheap. 14, come every day. Yeah. So start on February 14th. Which 14th. Is and then come every day, day yeah. two nights, yeah. <laughs> two shows a day. Come back, you know, at some point. So that's this. It's the album release party. And it's also a kind of New York Valentine week. I love that. Yeah. Something. Yeah. Love in the city. It's so unique and special and and uh, what's what's the word? Um, it's not just love. It's like love, sex, and survival. You there know? you go. Yeah, all right. It's like that would be the sub story of all of this. You know, Melissa on love, sex, and survival. Sometimes incredible. He never gets boring. Just no. doesn't. And his his stuff doesn't write for genders. It doesn't write for times. It's nope. it's timeless and genderless. It's just about relationships. And that's what that's why part of why I really like Sondheim stuff is, um, and why it, even the re recent revival of Company I think worked as a, a gender swapped sort of production, mm -hmm. um, because it's it's just all about finding love, finding acceptance, finding relationships, connection, and, and, and connection. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 connection. And he may not be as famous as Taylor Swift, but come on, he's taught me how to live. You know, in a lot of if ways, he and had... how to raise my kids. Even look at Into the Woods. He sort of taught me how to parent. Yeah, and he didn't parent. He parented so many of us, though. So he's that's a, that's so much wisdom in his underneath. You know, so much wisdom. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. I appreciate that. Yeah. All right. So three questions I ask to wrap up every episode. Super. Just the very first one is. By the way, let me tell you, you're oh. just the most charming person on earth. Oh, stop! No, you are. You're so charming, and I see why you're so successful. Well, you I love what just... you do, and you're a real ruminator, aren't you? I like to, I like to come in and connect. I like to connect. Yeah, I'm so bananas for you. Okay, so all right, so we're wrapping up three <laughs> questions. <laughs> okay, three questions. Uh, first one, just very simply, is what motivates you? Hmm, what motivates me? I, I can't answer the question. It's like uh, impossible not to do it. It's just creativity is. I just wake up every day with hope. I wake up every day with an idea to make something beautiful happen you know and bring people you know hmm. together i every day i wake up with hope i've had so many knocks i can't tell you and i don't know why i don't wake up knocked <laughs> i wake up like ready to go that's just me you know i just wake up like natural and ready to try again oh, i love that okay what advice would you give to your younger self and younger people listening now starting out down a similar path Oh, if I could, I, you know, it's like, this is like a past life therapy or, or inner child or whatever. Go back to your child. What would you have sa said? Is that mm -hmm. what you mean? Like what? I just wish someone had just said it's all going to be okay. Just Did you so have a lot of stress? No, I just was thinking it was so far away, you know, 
Mm. And it's like, it might've just been better if I just had this feeling that I didn't have to reach so much, you know? So maybe, is that what you mean? Like what, what someone could have said to me? Yeah. Or something? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I just, I guess it would have been nice to say you're limitless and it's all there for you. Uh, so that I, it just seemed so far, you know? It's like the Wizard of Oz or something. It was just, it's the whole thing. It's there's no place like home, right? Mm-hmm. It's click your heels. Like we don't have to try that hard. But instead, I was on the brick road, and I went all these different places. And I like our new our new world. You know, in some ways, I feel like people are very forgiving and very, uh, you know, shake it off and keep going. So, uh, so I, I guess I wish I had been told that, but maybe I wouldn't have had the adventure that I had because I was so adventurous, and I would have been. You have so complacent. much adventure left. Uh, I have so much have. adventure left. You know, Marilyn yeah. May, the great Marilyn May is 96. And I wrote her profile in the New York Times. Uh, this time last year, I spent a month with her and she makes me feel like I have more time left than I've even spent in the arts. Wow. So we do have, if we follow Marilyn May, we're all, we all, you have like a hundred years left. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Most people out there, you know, feel rushed. Don't feel rushed. Don't feel no. rushed. I just, yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you. I mean, I still tell, I have to tell myself that because I, I've done a lot. I can do a lot. I still want to do a lot, and mm-hmm. but then I always feel like I'm running out of time. Not, not like chasing down or death chasing me, but just in terms of the day, there's only so many things you can do during the day. So how do you prioritize what's important, right? So, For sure. Well, we're giving hard. a labyrinthine answer, but I guess there is this idea that we should not live in the future. You're doing a creative thing today. Yeah. And really live true. it. You're doing a great job with this pro- podcast, true, for example. True. You Thank know, you. really you. warm, engaging conversations, really creative. So let be, let this be enough today. All right. All right. You know, so let it be. last question. This is the hardest one. If you could only see one okay. show for the rest of your life, but you can see it as many times as you want, what would you see? A musical. Any show. Like a television show? Well, Any show. Television. This, that's why this is hard. You can do, okay. You can uh, do, why is it hard? One show for the rest of your life. I almost think if it has to be for the rest of my life, it would probably have to be like Shakespeare or something because the rest of your life is a really long time. I would. I might get a little bored of Sunday in the Park with George at that point because I already know it so well. I might think, oh gosh. Um, uh, you know what? I'm going to say a chorus line. Original. I'm going to say Donna? a chorus line. I, I, I guess if the rest of my life, each person, I love the songs. I'd sing and dance. You know, if I was super old, I'd be playing all the characters and the idea <laughs> of making it in New York you know, is so formative. I guess if mm-hmm. I really had to just get it down to one singular sensation, you know, if I was on an island like Tom Hanks and I just had a little screen and I had to just make a top hat out of a coconut, I guess I would, I'm just trying to imagine this crisis of having only one thing to look at. It's just some sort of apocalyptic question. So I guess it would be chorus line because I came to New York from Manhasset and I made it kind of on a line. But I also love all the crazy multiplicity you know of people who are here so and the ballet that beautiful song mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know and what oh. i did for love i think i could hold on you know to that to that show i love that all right well then we said at the beginning melissa melissa i said it melissa i love this Melissica. i was melissa co and now i'm melissa <laughs> it's some melissa. kind of wonderful like musical like with a k yeah. like melissa you know. <laughs> melissa erico fairy mom um on instagram and threads right and oh, so yeah. where else can I'm we on connect all with these you things come and chat with me say hello get to know me i want to get to know you it's good fun fun yeah, and then um fun. you're getting on tiktok uh, eventually so by the time this comes no, out I'm on TikTok. Be... no no oh, i put on? a whole bunch okay. on tiktok okay. i i did okay. some crazy stuff in my uber car the other day telling people about my day and and then i did something really weird at breakfast and my children put it on private they stopped it they're like you cannot do that i looked so crazy with my cuckoo like wild morning hair and my eye mask up on the top of my head and my children said that i was going to become a meme immediately so <laughs> i have to learn not to be too willing to share the realities of a actress's life i mean anyway. if you <laughs> can be the butt of your own joke then go for it 
No press is bad press. Yeah, well, no my kids put it on private. They thought I was going too far. So uh, everybody, no, you can help me to figure out how far. Was it embarrassing go. them or afraid you would embarrass yourself? Because that's a difference. I, I think just think my hair looks so bad, and I think on that you're supposed to be on TikTok looking so-called bad, but you should have makeup on and look great. That, mm. Yeah, you see, I, I said, mm. well, why shouldn't I? I looked amazing like, a couple of days ago at Town Hall doing a Charles Aznavour tribute, and then now this is what I look like in the morning. I think that's good for people to see. No, no, they said no. So, <laughs> well, we'll see. I can't I can't wait for these conversations with my kids. That's going to be interesting. Dad, you're embarrassing me again. I'm like, well, Yeah, you're going to be an embarrassing dad. That's for oh, sure. We literally read, my older one is nine. Um, we read oh. a dad joke books, a dad jokes book to go to bed. Exactly. He loves dad jokes. So yeah. uh, he's my kid. Yeah, I bet you're a great dad. <laughs> We've um, got a lot of fun. So anyway, I'll see everybody out there. and and uh, But I'm, I don't have a plan to be um, phony. So I just may not show my eye mask on my head and what I actually look like when I get get up for a little longer. Fair, <laughs> fair, fair, fair. All right, you can get more of me at Theater Podcast on uh, Instagram, Twitter, Threads, TikTok, Facebook. God help me if I know what I'm doing on any of them. Um, leave a rating and a review wherever you are listening. Thanks to Jukebox the Ghost for the intro and outro music. And Melissa Co. Thank you Melissa so much. Co. See you at Birdland, <laughs> Valentine's That's Day. Right. Thank you. It's a pleasure to, to spend time with you. You're amazing. You too. Thank you. It's so Bye, lovely folks. to talk to you. Take a deep breath, make the world a little colorful. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.